chapter 4, it was there that we learned that Paul did not want these believers to be uninformed, that there were gaps or holes in what they believed, and this is what he wanted to fill in. This is what he wanted them to know. And what was at the heart of that? That, that they, were, they were struggling, they had doubts, they, they had a personal uh, anxiety over the fact that they had lost church members and they were worried about their future. They didn't know if they were going to be abandoned to the grave. And so Paul tells them that those who had fallen asleep, using that term very specifically to speak of those who were dead in the graves, that they were just sleeping in the sense that while their bodies were truly dead, those bodies would live again. And so he gives the church hope saying that, that those who have died in Christ, they are going to be raised, that they are going to rise again. And, and then he said, he, he revealed this mystery at 1 Corinthians 15 and here of the fact that the, not only the dead will be raised, not only will the dead be caught up to the Lord, but also those who are alive. So when the Lord comes, there will be some alive, and those who are alive, they will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. That will be their glorification. And in that moment, then they will be with the Lord. And, and Paul then said, they will be with him forever. So both the, the dead who are raised and those who are alive who are caught up together with the Lord, they will be with him forever. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 16, 17. We also talked about the fact that this would be a public event. Paul makes that clear. He says there in verse 16 that, that Jesus will descend from heaven with a shout. That's a loud shout, with the voice of an archangel, and then a trumpet of God. And then he says the dead in Christ will rise. These line up with Jesus' words from Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, if you, if you look to the words of Jesus and you look to the words of Paul, you see that they are very much connected. They are, they are very much in line. And we should use Matthew 24 to help us understand 1 Thessalonians. So in Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus said immediately after the tribulation, telling us when believers would be caught up. Not, not before the tribulation, but he says immediately after the tribulation of those days. And then he goes to say, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Again, we see very public signs going on because... Of this, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why are they mourning? Because they realize that Jesus Christ has come. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is here. They're mourning because their day of destruction has come. And then he says, Jesus says this, then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So notice how he says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and then they will see. And who will they see? They will see Jesus Christ with power and great glory. And again, this lines up with what Paul is saying. And if you go all the way to the book of Revelation and you read about the return of Christ, you see Jesus coming in power and great glory. Glory, And then here Jesus speaks of the rapture or of what you could simply call the harvest or him gathering his 
elect. In, in Matthew 24, verse 31, he says, And then he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Remember, there was a trumpet in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So, these chapters, they fit together so very well. And, and what are they speaking about? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 and Matthew chapter 24. They're speaking of the day of the Lord. I want you to notice from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 to chapter 5, there's no change in subject from Paul. So what he's getting ready to do, he's going to talk about judgment that's going to come upon unbelievers. He's going to talk about how the day of the Lord affects both the believer and the unbeliever alike. And he didn't change subjects. He's talking about the rapture, and now he's talking about what that day will be like for the unbeliever. They are happening at the same time. He doesn't change subject. At this point in time in this little sermon series, you know that it is no secret that I reject the most popular view in our country in Christianity as a whole, which is that there is something called a pre-tribulational rapture or a secret rapture or Jesus coming for the church first, for those who have died in Christ first, and then at the end of the age or end of that, that tribulation, then he comes a second time. This is a view that, that I would say is, is not found in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. It's not found in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24. The, the rapture is simply the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures simply teach. Now, as I say that, and perhaps you might have think that I've been a little hard on those who would hold to a pre-tribulational rapture during this ser sermon series, and and I want to say that this is a secondary issue at best, and perhaps even a tertiary issue. It is, it is not the five solas. It's not salvation. It is, it, we are saved by grace through faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone is holding on to those simple truths, not trusting in themselves, but trusting in Christ Jesus and him alone for salvation, they are a brother and sister in Christ, and they can be wrong on the rapture. <laughs> And we will offer them the right hand of fellowship. And I also don't expect my church members to believe, or fellow church members, to believe exactly as I believe. What I am doing is simply teaching you the scriptures as they are written. And so this is where my conscience has to take me. I have to teach this in this way. I can do no other because this is the plain reading of the text. And, and here's where we should all desire to be. If we hold a view and the scriptures tell us something different, our minds should change. Our minds should change because we should desire to have our minds conform to the scriptures, to the very word of God. Because why would we ever want to hold a view that is not what God has said? So... If you hold to something that is different than me, then study this for yourself. I challenge you, I challenge you to look to the word and be convinced of the pure word of God. Because that's what God would have us do, right? To have our minds renewed by his word. 
We should receive his word and reject anything that would go contrary. Here's my desire for all of you, that you would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and that that knowledge would be found from his word. But hear me say something else. Eschatology, that's the study of end things or last things or the end times. God has purposely made it difficult for us. He doesn't want us to be able to figure everything out. If he did, he would have made it very plain. The book of Revelation is, is, is lit, written in, in a, a type of language that shrouds it in mystery. It's apocalyptic. It, it, it is difficult to understand and to discern. And so God has shrouded it in mystery because he doesn't want us to know everything about the end. Re remember what I said last week. It, it is a surprise. And, and we should not be those who desire to spoil God's surprise. It, it's coming like a thief. He has shrouded it in mystery, and it is difficult. And, and here's the truth of Scripture. He hasn't given us all the information, so all of us have holes in our eschatology. We can all believe we're right. We can all believe we have a right interpretation of the end, but all of us have holes in our eschatology. And in fact, if you want to talk to me about it, I know all the views and I can point out holes in all of them, including my own. Including my own. And so what does that mean? That means we should approach these types of subjects with humility. Knowing that we don't have all the answers. Where God has not been evidently clear for us, we need to just take him at his word and approach texts like that with humility. Humility, and certainly not separate from those who would hold a different view, but have you know, healthy, loving debates over such views. So, what was the, that being said, let's get back to the topic at hand. What was the evidence that the rapture is simply the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? We've talked about three reasons why so far. And we'll get to a fourth one in today's sermon. But first, it was Paul speaking of one coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, not two. He doesn't speak of a secret coming and then a second coming. If you read this text, if you read it in its context, read it in its fullness, it is one coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how that, a coming, how that coming affects the believer and how it affects the unbeliever. He speaks of one day of the Lord. Secondly, Jesus himself did not say he would come twice. He said he was coming back. And he explains to us his coming in Matthew 24, and it is a one-time event. And in fact, 8070 speaks, it, it, it is almost a, a foreshadowing of the, the judgment of God that is to come, the coming of Christ that is to come. And, and if we look at his words, we have to know that some of those things in Matthew 24 were fulfilled in AD 70, not all of them, but some of them were. And what happened in AD 70? God rescued his people. They came out of the city. They heard the words of Jesus Christ, and they came out of the city. They were gathered to Christ, out of the city. And what happened to the city? It was utterly destroyed. 
And this is what the end, this is what the second coming of Christ will look like. He's going to bring his people to himself and then utterly destroy those who remain. So, first he speak, the first point was he speaks of one coming, not two. The second, Paul makes it clear that it is a spectacle from heaven. That everyone will know of this. And Jesus, he, if, you, if you tie their words together, you will see that Jesus made this point also. This is not secret. The world will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. The world will mourn at his coming. And the third reason is what you notice from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 is this day of the Lord, it affects both believers and unbelievers alike. It's different, right? It's different for the believer than it is for the unbeliever, but it is affecting both the believer and the unbeliever alike. So you can see that it can't be in a different timeline because this day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, it affects both the believers and the unbelievers. For the believer, it is their salvation, right? 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. You brothers are not in darkness that this day would overtake you like a thief. This is your salvation when the Lord comes. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a surprise. It's, it's something that you are expecting. What are you being rescued from? The judgment of God that is coming upon the whole earth. And then in verse, th verse 3, Paul explains how this day affects the unbeliever. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman who is pregnant and will never escape. They will never escape. So Paul, that third point was how it will affect both believers and unbelievers. It's the same day looking at it from two different vantage points. It, notice here from the believer, and this will get us into the message that we're going to speak about today. That day will not overtake us like a thief. And in verse 5, it tells us why. For we are sons of light, sons of the day. We are not those in darkness. And so this is really what I want to talk about this morning in depth is this idea of being in darkness and the idea of being a son of light. So let's just look at those in Scripture. What is Paul meaning? When he says you're not in darkness, let's just explore biblically what it means to be in darkness. Ephesians chapter 4 probably is the, one of the clearest places that tells us about it. Paul says there in verse 17, Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Did you hear that? Their futility of their mind. And then the very next verse, in verse 18, he says, being darkened in their mind. So when you hear darkness in the scriptures, think of the mind being darkened. Think of spiritual darkness or the heart is dark. The, the, the mind lacks comprehension of spiritual things or light things, things of the light. Paul goes on to say that this, this darkened mind, it has effects on the person. He says they've been alienated from the life of God. So the darkness is separate from God. God is light, and if you're separate from God, you're in the darkness. 
And he says, because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality of the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. And so you've seen the darkened mind, the futility of thought, what has it led to in their lives? A separation from God, they're in darkness, and then not only that, a life that is full of sin. And so when you see darkness in the scriptures, what is it telling you? It's synonymous with sin, with our sin nature. It's, it's, it speaks of our condition, our mind's condition because of the fall. And it speaks of Satan's domain. Colossians 1 verse 3 is, is really where you see that it's tied to Satan himself. There it says of Jesus Christ that he rescued us from the authority of darkness. He rescued us from Satan's authority. And then he transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. So we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness, as some translations put it. And we've been transferred into the son of his love, into his kingdom. Not only is it our mind's condition because of the fall, not only is it synonymous with a sinful life, a sinful walk, Satan's kingdom, there's another application of darkness that we see throughout Scripture. If you're unrepentant, if you never bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, if you remain in your sins forever, what did Jesus promise you? That you would be cast into the eternal darkness, forever banned from the light of God, eternal. Jude 1-2 makes this point for us, eternal darkness. Speaking of false teachers there, Jude says this, these are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. That is, they're in the church and they're among them as they fellowship together. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, their clouds without water, their, their teachings are, are worthless. They're carried away along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You hear that? Eternal darkness. So you you have a dark mind. Your life is full of darkness and sin. You're of Satan's kingdom of darkness. And if you never repent and trust Christ, you'll be in eternal darkness. This is how darkness is used in the scriptures. It warps our minds. It warps our thinking. We cannot comprehend. We cannot understand. Think about what we learned about last week in verse 3. They're saying peace and security. That's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That's what the dark mind does. They're convincing themselves that judgment is not coming. That they, they know their shameful deeds deserve the judgment of God, yet they've convinced themselves over and over again by a, a dark mind that it's not coming, telling themselves peace and safety. It breaks our thinking. It gives us the inability to see and inability to think properly. The scripture would call us, in our darkened mind, fools. Fools that are unable to stop sinning. And ultimately, we're not, net, we're not neutral in this. We're of the darkness because we are sinners. We sin because we're sinners. And on top of that, we love our sin by nature. The believer is obviously to be 
different. But not only are they of the darkness in all these waves that we've pointed out from Scripture, they're happy in their darkness because they, by nature, love their sin. And it's a cyclical cycle, the pain of sin, the grief of sin, the heartache of sin, the consequences of sin. They go after it, but then they can't stop, and they just it's over and over and over again. And you might ask, why would they continue to do this? Their minds are darkened. They are in futility of mind. They can't comprehend even what they are doing. This is why they rejected Jesus, by the way. So in love with their sin, so a part of the darkness that when the light comes into the world, they can't receive it. They can't accept it. They can't worship it. The Lord Jesus Christ, they can't worship him. Instead, they reject him. They crucify him. They hate him with a passion. He exposes who they truly are, those who are in love with sin. John 1.5 says, the light shines into the darkness, speaking of the incarnation. Imagine a completely dark world with, with not one bit of light. That is this earth. And Jesus, the, the light of the world, God himself becomes man, and it is a, a light in the midst of utter darkness. And John tells us that the darkness did not overtake it. Some translate it overcome it. Some translate it comprehended. It's an interesting Greek word that has like the meaning of grasp. So one, John could be saying that they couldn't defeat the light. They couldn't overcome the light. That while Satan desired to kill Christ, he did very that. He inspired men to do that. It was his defeat. He couldn't defeat Christ. Through the cross and through the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ defeats Satan's sin and death. They couldn't overcome it. And also, John is notorious for this in the sense that he, he will give a Greek word that has a double meaning. And perhaps he wants us, he was inspired to make sure we got the double meaning of the word. It could simply mean that they couldn't grasp it mentally. That so in love with the darkness, minds so dark, unable to see, hear, receive, they couldn't grasp that the light had come into the world. When, when Jesus was talking to them at times, he's something greater than Moses is here. The kingdom of God had come upon you. They couldn't grasp it. Jesus says that, or in John, further, he says this is the very judgment on the world, that the light has come into the world. What should we do when the light comes into the world? We should all bow and worship him. We should all receive him. We should all love him, adore him. But the judgment was that men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so this is the condition of man, darkness. This is what scripture describes it as. And to say that you're a child of light means that something drastic has had to happen in your life. It means that something miraculous had to happen in your life. You couldn't think before properly. You had busted mind that the scriptures called you a fool. You were unable to stop sinning, continually going after it. Something miraculous had to happen where you were able to think correctly. You were able to see correctly. You were able to now see the path in front of your feet. So, according to Paul, you were without sight of the night 
He's going to say that they are drunk, that is, that they are unable to stop sinning, not saying that they were literally drunk with alcohol, while that is something that unbelievers do often. But what he's in this metaphor, he's basically saying that we're in love with sin and unable to stop it. We're intoxicated with it. Could not understand the truth, the truth of God's word. If that's who we are, how could we ever be called a son of light? How could we begin to understand and to repent of sin, trust Christ, be changed? Well, if you are called a son of light, if, if you are of the light, that means something miraculous has happened to you. That as Colossians 1.13 says, you have been delivered by the hand of God out of the kingdom of darkness and you've been brought into his marvelous light. To simply say that you are a child of light is to say that you have been born again, simply put. If, you, if you, you're not born again, then you are not a child of light because that's the drastic difference between light and darkness. How different can darkness be from light? Could it be any more different? They're opposites. And so to say that you are now a child of light is to say that you have been born of God. And this is what the scriptures teach. You've been given life in his name. John 1.4, in him was the life, and the life was the light of men. You were dead and in darkness, and now you have life and you are of the light. I love these words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To have Christ is to have the light. It is to see. It is to be alert. It is to be awake. Jesus says in, in John 12, 35, he says, For you have the light a little while longer. While you have it, walk in it, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Our perception, our ability to, to see things, to understand things, to, to, to follow Christ, it's all because he is the light of the world who gives us light. John 12, 46, he's, he says, I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. This is the promise from Christ that if you are his, you are now a child of the light. You're not in darkness. You will not remain in darkness. You are not in the darkness. Ephesians 5, 8, Paul says, you were formerly of the darkness, no longer. But now you are the light in the Lord. And then he says, so walk as children. So Paul is reminding this church of the Thessalonians that they're not of the darkness. Remember, you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. You're no longer of the darkness. You are now of the light. In telling them they were of the light, he's telling them, you can hear. You can see. You are alert. You are awake. You have the word of God. You have understanding. It's the lamp unto your feet. God has made you vigilant. 
of the things that are to come. There's no reason that this day should overcome you or overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you're of the light. You're awake. You're no longer of the darkness. Think about it too. What were they? They were afraid of the day of the Lord. They had anxious, they were, had anxiety over it. But if you've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light, God is not going to throw you back into darkness. Right? If you were dead and he made you new, he's not going to kill you again. He's not going to cause you to spiritually die again. This isn't how God works. And so Paul was telling them, the judgment of God is not coming for you because you are a child of light. This day does not overtake children of light. It does overtake the darkness. And, and Paul has made that point. Jesus made that point. It will overtake them because it will come like a thief. They will not be expecting it. Remember why? They don't have any understanding. Their minds are dark. They're in futility of their mind. They're, they're sinning. They're living. They're going on with life. They're, they're telling themselves, convincing themselves of peace and security as if there is no judgment. They scoff at his coming. They, they mock it in their unbelief and they're stumbling around in darkness, living for today. They're eating and drinking and being merry for the morrow they die. This is their life. It causes heartache and pain. It causes consequences. Yet, unable to stop, they do it over and over again. And Paul says that they are asleep and drunk. And this is what he means by it. 1 Thessalonians 5.7. If you look at that verse, you see he says, For those who are asleep, sleep at night. And those who get Drunk, get drunk at night. Now, he's talking about those who are in the darkness. He's talking about the unbeliever. And so what's he mean by this metaphor? One resource says this. To say that they are asleep is to say that they're unaware of their condition. Like Jesus saying on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're unaware of their condition. Speak, sleep speaks of their ignorance. They're ignorant to the things of God. They're ignorant to the, the, the consequences of sin. They're, they're ignorant to the wages of sin being death. It speaks of their insensibility. It speaks of their inactivity. The reason the scriptures say none is righteous, no, not one, is because people are asleep. They're, they're doing nothing good. Not one thing good. Everything is from a selfish, selfish, sinful motive. And then Paul says that they're drunk. And as I said earlier, this doesn't mean that they are drunk with much wine. That's not, exact, that's not what Paul's talking about here. But what does he mean? He means they're actively living in sin. They're pursuing sin. They continually go after sin. They cannot stop. They are intoxicated. The believer is to be the exact opposite of this. As I said, how far away is darkness from light? They are exact opposites. We are to be, what, awake and sober. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says. Look at that verse. He says, so then let us not sleep 
as others do. But let us be awake and sober. So if you're a child of the light, what would God require of you? To be awake and to be sober. Awake, that means you're actually walking as a child of light, right? You're, you're, you're living this out. You're, you're reading the word of God. You know the word of God. And you believe it and you're putting it into action. You're awake. You're perceiving things. You're having your mind renewed by the word of God day in and day out. You're thinking God's thoughts after him. You're sober. You understand the dangers of sin. If, if, if drunkenness was, I can't stop sinning, I'm intoxicated by sin, I am in love with the darkness, to be sober is the opposite. To understand the dangers of sin, to understand the wages of sin, to understand that sin is destructive, sin is insanity, sin brings consequences. To be a believer and to continue to sin is to go against your very nature, is to do the very things that Christ died for. Not only that, it's the danger of understanding that sin would lead to wandering away from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So to say that you're awake and sober means that you are able to see the word of God for what it is. You, you look now through the world, you have a worldview that is through the lens of the truth. You understand that everything that's going on around you is working towards this. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every moment that you live, everything that you do, every unbeliever, everybody is a, a piece in this puzzle that God is bringing together for the return of his king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the consummation of his kingdom. We understand we're a part of God's story. We're a part of his Story. We, we understand we are a part of, of, of God's plan for the future. We understand that God has history in his hands, that the future is his, and to know God is to be on the right side of history. You understand this, and every day should be for him in light of that. Not only that, you're awake because you're not going to be surprised at his coming. I'm sure we'll be surprised and in awe of the event but he's come. You're awake. You're sober. You're thinking clearly. There's Jesus. I get it. I'm awake and I'm sober. I'm expecting his coming. I'm looking forward to his coming. I'm not caught off guard. I'm not blind. I'm not in the darkness. My, my mind is not darkened with sin. So he tells the believers, be awake and be sober. And ultimately, I've said many times, that the biggest thing, the warning passages towards believers about the second coming of Christ is not to make sure you're perfect for when Jesus comes. That's not the warning from Scripture because you're never going to amount to that and that's going to end up in works righteousness and you trying to keep your salvation. That's not what the Scriptures teach. What Jesus was warning against was apostasy. Over and over again, Jesus was telling us, make sure your faith is real. Make sure you really have the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure that your profession is not merely in word, but the gospel has penetrated your hard heart and has made you new. You're a child of the light. Make certain of it because he's coming. And make sure when he comes, he's coming to save you, 
not to damn you for eternity. That's the idea from Scripture as you look to them. It's a warning against apostasy over and over again. Now, Paul gives the believer here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 ways to be protected against apostasy. That's what you are going to see in verse 8. That's what he's telling them. So, you're a child of light. Be sober. Be awake. And now, here's how you make certain that you are not going to be one of those foolish virgins. That, that you're prepared as a bride awaiting your bridegroom. You're prepared for his coming. You're going to be awake and sober. So here's how he tells us how. He says, put on the breastplate of faith, there in verse 8, and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he brings up armor, and why does he do that? Well, he wants your mind to go to the soldier. That's why he does that. Because a good soldier is alert, correct? A, a good soldier is, is about his king's business. He, he's doing what he's been commanded. He's also, think if he's on the night watch. He'd be a pretty lousy night watch if he was asleep, right? So he's awake, he's vigilant. But, but also think if he went into battle and he didn't have any armor on. He would also, that would make him a fool. He would not be a good soldier, correct? So Paul, he shifts gears here to tell you to be like a soldier. In order to be awake, in order to be sober, you need to, to do these things to prepare yourself to fight to fight the good fight. And he says, put on the breastplate of faith and love and then the helmet of hope. What's this to do? It's to protect us from the evil one, obviously. And notice these three. It's the triad of Christianity, faith, hope, and love. It's repeated by Paul so often. And what, what how is the believer to put these on? Well, first we need to know what they are. These three is, as I said, it's, it's what Christianity is to be known for. It's what every Christian is to be known for. If you remember from chapter 1, what was this church known for? Their faith, love, and hope. They were remaining steadfast in hope. They had works of faith, and they were laboring in love. They were known for this triad, and Paul now tells them, to put this on, to help them, to, to protect them from falling away, from being consumed by darkness. So what's, what's the breastplate of faith here? Well, that's trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Having faith in Christ is not just a one-time event. That's a daily thing. It's an everyday thing. Every day, are you trusting Jesus instead of yourself? Do you wake up in the morning and say, I've got to earn my way to heaven? Or are, are you looking to yourself? Am I still saved today? Are, are you worrying about your performance constantly? Or are you looking to Christ and looking to him over and over again? I persevered yet another day because Jesus did it. Jesus kept me today because Jesus paid it all. 
I sinned yet again. I need the cross of Christ. Are you trusting in the crucified and not yourself? And, and here's the thing. Not only the moment you saved did you, were you saved because you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, but your trust in him should be growing. Your understanding of that trust should continually grow, knowing that nothing in yourself is good, nothing, that you are who you are, anything that you have done, any perseverance, any step you have done after Christ is all because of what he has done and not because of you. To trust in Christ, this is the core of who we are as believers. It's our only hope in life and death. And Paul says, put on the breastplate of faith. Put it on. Know it well. Go to the scriptures. Continually grow in the faith. Have more and more knowledge of Jesus. Believe it, receive it, and live it. And do it over and over again and don't stop. Protect yourself against apostasy by putting on the breastplate of trust in Christ. And Paul says, of love. Here it would be loving the church and loving outsiders. Why would Paul say, guard yourself, protect yourself with love? Well, if, if you are loving people, if you're busy about the kingdom of God, if you're busy working for the kingdom of God, if you're busy serving others, if you're busy going and telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ, what are you not going to be doing? Indulging in the flesh. Remember the sermon that we talked about idleness, idleness the, the saying, it's the devil's playground. Idleness leads to sin. Idleness gives power to the flesh. Paul says here, continue in love. Love for one another, love for others, love for your enemies. Continue in love because in love you are busy serving God and not so busy serving yourself. And in doing so, it protects you against sin. Last, he says hope. Notice he says hope of salvation. I love that. Because that's what all this has been about, right? The end of chapter 4, what did he say? Encourage one another in these things. Verse 11, what's he going to say? Encourage one another in these things. Build up each other's hope. The hope of salvation. Put this on. Know this well. Go to the word of God. Get all the verses about what your future is in Christ. Hold them in your heart. Know them well and then hope in them. And this is going to protect you from falling away. Hope in what is not seen. Have the strong conviction in your heart, the confidence in your heart that these are not cleverly devised myths, but this is the true word of God that is coming. Believe it and hope in it and gird yourself with it. Put it on. And live in the reality of the factual hope that the future is God's. Believe it, trust it, hope it. Paul expects every believer to do this, by the way. Where does it all come from? Obviously the word of God. So he's telling you to, to know the word. Know it, trust it. 
breastplate of faith. Live it out. Love. Loving others. Serving others. And hope. Those verses about our future in Christ. Hope in our salvation. Put them on and be alert like a soldier waiting for his king to return. Imagine a good soldier and a king that has left his kingdom in the care of his soldiers. He's returning. He wants to see you fully arrayed in his armor, prepared, doing his work, serving him, longing to see that king again. That's where your loyalty is. That's who has your heart. That's who you want to serve. That's who you want to see again. You're a soldier that desires to see your beloved king. And when he comes, you don't want to be afraid of the king like he's going to execute you. For being a traitor, but as one who is of the light, who is received by his king and brought into his heavenly forces to fight for him. Paul is confident that the church will do this. If you are a believer, Paul was confident that all believers would do this. Why do I say that? Because they were predestined to do so. You were predestined to do so. You know, last week I said that the deity of Christ is everywhere in the scriptures, and it certainly is. The more you study the scriptures, the more you see the reality that Jesus is God, and that's not some fictitious thing made up by Christians. It's, it's what God testifies to in his inspired word over and over again. It is all over it. You know what else is all over the word of God? The fact that God predestined people to do things predestined people to be saved, predestined people to be saved from wrath. You are destined to persevere if you are in Christ. You are destined to put on the armor of God if you are in Christ. You are destined not to be overcome with that day like a thief if you are in Christ. Paul wants to assure the born again in the church. He wants to give them hope. He wants to give them confidence. He wants to give them assurance. You know how you can hope in this? God has done this. And yeah, he spoke it into existence far beyond the world was ever created. He destined you to persevere. He wants to give them assurance by telling them that they have been appointed to this. They have been destined for this. Look at verse 9. For God has not appointed you. Some translate it, God has not destined us for wrath. But what has he destined you? Continue reading the verse. For obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what assures that this thing that has been destined will take place? Because Christ died for us, so that whether we were awake or asleep, we would all live together with him. Here is the hope of your salvation. And here's the amazing thing. Your salvation was determined before the foundation of the world. You were not appointed for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. I don't know about you, but this is exciting stuff. This is stuff to receive, to love, to to hold on to, to cherish, to have great assurance because of.
John Calvin said, there can be no better assurance of salvation than from the decree of God. Could there be any greater assurance of salvation than the decree of God? If, if, you are, if you are a child of the light, please take this in and believe it. God has not appointed you for wrath. There can be no greater assurance of salvation than the decree of God himself. If God said it, that finishes it. You were not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation. Hope in these things. Notice from this verse that on the day of the Lord, believers are not destined for wrath, but to be saved. This was that fourth point that the rapture is simply the day of the Lord. The rapture is simply the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this word here, it really does mean the wrath of God. God is precise with his language, and in fact, if he wanted to save you from the great tribulation, this, word would, this verse would read like this. You are not destined for the great tribulation. It doesn't say that. It speaks of the day of the Lord, the fearful and awesome day of the Lord coming upon the whole earth. Some on that day will be destined for wrath, and others will be destined to obtain salvation. Jesus is the one who promised us that in this life we would have tribulation. And there is no promise in all of Scripture that we will ever be saved from severe tribulation. Not once. And we've all lost loved ones. We've all watched believers go through some of the most horrific pain in this life. A beloved sister in Christ recently just got the death sentence from cancer. She is going to suffer immensely because of it. You know what she's going to do? She's going to glorify her God in heaven because she loves him and he is worthy. But there was no promise for her that she would not get that tribulation. It's not found in here. In fact, the opposite is promised us. But what is the amazing promise? While we might suffer in this life, while we might go through severe tribulation in this life, We were not destined for the wrath of God. And there's nothing in this life, no light momentary affliction that is worth comparing to what God is going to save us from and then give us when he glorifies us, our glorious inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ. This word for wrath, it is always translated as anger, or wrath. It speaks of God's anger towards the unbeliever, towards sin. It speaks of God's wrath coming upon the whole earth. That's what this verse is. When it's used of people like us, it's saying, put away wrath, put away anger. And here Paul says that the anger of God is coming upon the whole earth, and it's happening on the day of the Lord, and you as children of the light, were not appointed for this wrath. It's God's vengeance. That's what he speaks of. And, and just so you know that some believe that there will be many saved during 
the Great Tribulation. I have many thoughts on the Great Tribulation. That's a different sermon for a different day. But just so you know, the biggest inconsistency with holding that this means that God will save us from the Great Tribulation is that there are many that are supposed to be saved during the Great Tribulation. Are they appointed for that wrath? They are not. They are not either. And this is speaking of all believers for all time. They are not appointed for the wrath of God that is going to be poured out. And if there was a single believer on earth, when that wrath of God comes, then this verse is not, it, it wouldn't be true. It's speaking that all of us, if you are in Christ, none of us are appointed for this. Not a single one of us. If it's Jews in the future who come to Christ, they're not appointed for wrath. If it's believers that come to Christ during, during the end of the age and, and, and the church was supposed to be raptured away and none of us are supposed to be here but people are still coming to faith, they're not appointed for wrath. None of us are appointed for the wrath of God, but we were destined to obtain salvation through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this verse is teaching us. It would be inconsistent to say that some believers have to go through the wrath of God, and other believers do not. It is a stretch, and it is eisegeting this text to say that this word wrath means the great tribulation. It simply is speaking of the vengeance of God coming upon the whole earth. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, as Paul finishes, see, see, you are the one who is a child of light, You've girded yourself with the armor of God. You're prepared to, to walk this out, to keep the faith, to persevere to the end. And he tells us that this is going to happen because God has predestined it to happen. That you were not destined for wrath, but you were destined to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. And in hearing this news, what's he say in verse 11? Encourage one another, comfort one another, build one another up like you would build a building. In other words, make this the foundation. When you go to others, each other, build each other up with this great news. It's amazing news. So let's finish up. I want to just say beware of falling asleep. We, we, we live in a time, many have fallen asleep. How many do you know that, that named the name of Christ and have fallen asleep, fallen back into darkness? They made provision for the flesh. They didn't heed the words of Scripture. To, to go after sin will, will, will cloud your thinking. It will destroy the, the faith that you think you have you will fall asleep and your mind will be darkened. How, how do we often fall asleep? How, what are some warnings against falling asleep? Be warned of creaturely comforts, of indulging too much or, or liking this here and now too much, putting all your, your, your desire into this world that God has given us and created for us. Of, of spending it all on your own kingdom, your own will. 
Satan seeks to lull us asleep. This doesn't happen quickly. It's a slow fade. It's over time. He wants to chip away at, at, at that, that faith that you say you have. He wants to hypnotize us with sin. Eventually, he would like to see hearts that deny the Lord Jesus Christ or at his appearance profess to know him. But there is no relationship there. There is no saving faith there. Remember those three things that the believer was to do to protect themselves. Sin would harden our hearts. It leads to unbelief and it leads to eventual apostasy, proving you were never his in the first place. That yes, you've confessed his name, but your heart had never been penetrated by that profession. Hear me say this, false converts do not intend to go to hell. They don't. They don't intend to go to hell. No one intends to go to hell. Well, maybe. Maybe ACDC does. <laughs> but especially false converts, they don't intend to get there. They don't intend to go there. And, and I know people who profess to be believers who now have completely apostatized who still think they're going to heaven. They don't intend to go to hell. And Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 7. They're surprised by this. But what happens? Sin leads to unbelief, eventually apostasy, proving that you were never his. So what's Paul say? Put on the breastplate of faith. Put it on. Do not neglect anything in this life that will strengthen and build your faith. And in fact, cut off anything that will weaken or destroy your faith. Build it be alert. Hear the warnings that even those who seem to be the most strong believers that you could imagine have fallen away. People are perishing in darkness. Will we be those who are awake and will go and awake them? Do we even desire it? Are we too busy with our creaturely comforts? Are we asleep at the wheel? Do we even desire to see, to love, to put on the breastplate of love and go and, and warn people that they're asleep? It's like someone's sitting in a prison cell and we have the key to let them out. But we never go take them the key which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will we be awake? Will we desire to love and go and tell people, actively tell people of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about loving the church? Will we be an active serving member in the church? Will we gird ourselves with the breastplate of love through loving our enemies with the gospel of Jesus Christ and then loving the body of the Lord Jesus Christ as working in active members, serving one another. Not coming here to say, what can I get? But coming here saying, how can I serve these people? How has God gifted me to love these people? Paul says that this is a guard against apostasy. 
This is to keep us awake and keep us sober to be a part of the body of Christ and not just a user of the body of Christ, but one who loves the members of Christ's household. And the last point. Is your hope of his coming real? Just just discern, take a moment to discern your heart this morning. Are you hoping in that? Are you afraid of it? Could you take it or leave it? Your actions, your thoughts, they should give you insight to whether you are hoping for your salvation. To teach you whether you've put this helmet on. Paul said that last thing that they were to do was to uh, hope to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Where's your devotion? Where's your time spent? Are you living like the king is coming? Are you living like the master is returning to the house? If you're truly hoping that you will see the Lord face to face, if you truly have that hope of salvation, you then should live like it. Your actions and your thoughts should teach you if you truly are hoping. Is all your devotion to the here and now, to the earthly? If it is, then your hope is not in what is eternal. And you should be warned. Because as we learn from this text today, you are only one of two types of people. Those who are appointed for wrath or those who will obtain salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please make sure that you are trusting in him and that he is coming for you.